And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, July 6th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, these USDA employees modernized an old program so poor Americans could eat better. Plus, the push is on to improve pay for the nation's federal firefighters. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, federal employee assistance programs, EAPs, offer employees help with mental health, substance abuse, financial and legal services. Now the Office of Personnel Management is nudging agencies to take their EAPs to a higher level. In new guidance, OPM details how agencies can provide more wellness options, such as fitness classes, health and wellness seminars, suicide prevention, training, and peer support. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got more from OPM's personnel research psychologist, Jorday Taswell. We wanted to recommend a way to rebrand EAPs that were consistent with the government's goal of being a model employer. There are additional services in the areas of health and wellness that are typically not offered or seen in these programs. And we've noticed that some agencies are just kind of being leaders in this area and have adapted new programs that are are creating a more comprehensive approach, which is what OPM is seeking to do with this guidance. We want to look at the mental, emotional, and physical aspects of an employee's health and wellness to really provide them with the most comprehensive arena of supports that are available. And how do you imagine that providing those extra resources is going to help employees in other areas like engagement, satisfaction, productivity? Do you see this kind of work as tying back to broader workforce goals? Absolutely. When it comes to one's productivity and satisfaction at work, it's directly related with your mental and physical wellness. So sometimes there are areas of our life where we need a little bit of personal development as well as professional development. And these employee wellness services can really help an employee to hone in on those areas and provide them with additional support, which can in turn lead to greater productivity and help agency employees meet the mission of their agency. And can you tell me more about what really went into putting together this guidance? What were some of the discussions that you had? Who were you engaging with um, certain stakeholders or other people that really went into the design or creation of the new guidance? To begin, we hosted a series of targeted focus groups with experts in psychology and health sciences, as well as work life and EAP coordinators across various federal agencies, such as Veterans Affairs, HHS, DHS, and DOL, amongst others. And we had discussions about the weaknesses and areas of improvement for EAP and wellness programs. We also discussed the attitudes employees across agencies tend to have towards EAPs. So if an agency noted that their EAPs tend to be more well-received across employees, we discussed what those agencies may be doing differently in order to determine some best practices. We also spoke with several EAP vendors to assess how these vendors gauge the success of a program as well as to gauge how agencies provide feedback to vendors and then in turn how vendors utilize this feedback. So you just mentioned that you looked at some agencies who have best practices or employees who received these programs well. Can you tell me a little bit more? What were some of the factors at those agencies that really led to employees feeling positively towards the programs that you're hoping to replicate on a larger scale? Well, some of these agencies already kind of had a mission which revolved around health and wellness, for example, NIH. And so uh, at NIH, they are currently offering several programs and resources, um, and they also are, you know, trying to create a workplace culture which really values employee wellness and well-being. And in speaking with their work-life coordinators, we were just able to kind of highlight a couple of key components that we could adapt in this guidance to really make it a comprehensive guidance for all federal employees. And another part of the guidance talks about agency leaders and their role in creating the right environment for this type of program. How do you see that role for agency leaders in making sure that employees first know that the program exists in the first place and then encouraging them to actually take part in it? 
So agency leaders are gifted with a very unique opportunity to inspire inclusive work cultures, which prioritize employee wellness and can really help set the standard for creating and maintaining an environment which normalizes conversations surrounding topics that may have historically had a bit of a negative stigma attached to them, such as mental health and mental health treatment. Our agency leaders can also be key in dispelling false myths associated with wellness services. So we're really recommending that these agency leaders continuously think about the accessibility component of employee wellness resources within their agency to ensure ease of access to and awareness of these tools and supports across the agency. And what are some of the myths that you're hoping agency leaders can help dispel specifically? For one, a lot of people tend to kind of have an outdated understanding of EAPs since they did traditionally originate as substance use treatment services with mental health counseling. However, today they've really grown and evolved to encompass so many more services and resources that sometimes employees are just not aware of these tools that are available at them. Agency leaders can also be key in dispelling myths associated associated with security clearance, such as, you know, if you utilize a mental health service, that suddenly your security clearance is going to be revoked. And we want agency leaders to, you know, tell their employees that this is simply not the case. There are very, very strict guidelines when it comes to that. If an employee is, you know, potentially a harm to themselves or others, but outside of those very, very small factors, generally this is never the case. And aside from using agency leaders to help kind of spread the word and encourage employees to take advantage of this when uh, it's needed, what other ways are you and OPM in general looking to make employees more aware that these resources are available? Are there certain methods of communication where you're looking to get in touch with employees more? So we're currently looking to modernize our employee wellness page to facilitate easier and more direct access to various resources and supports for employees in one centralized space. However, we'll definitely follow up on some additional strategies on how we intend to spread awareness on these services and resources. And I wanted to touch on one other part of the guidance that um, I found pretty interesting. It talks a little bit about, um, you know, things like cultural sensitivity and the role of uh, maybe diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, which I know is another uh, big priority for OPM in general. So I was wondering if you could lay out a little bit more specifically, how, how did you think about DEIA and that initiative when you were designing this new guidance on employee wellness? Great question. So this guidance provides criteria for agency leaders um, that kind of center around um, creating reasonable accommodations, using effective communication, uh, physical accessibility and compliance with the Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. In addition, under the new Cultural Competency Services Act uh, component of EAP services, resources and supports for underserved communities and training areas and cultural and ethnic awareness are also addressed, which ties in directly in our goal to foster a culture of inclusion at OPM. So these resources now should also include referrals and access to external resources for transgender, gender nonconforming, and non-binary employees. And are there ways that you're going to be measuring progress or success of the program and any plans to maybe make changes along the way as you see fit? That's a wonderful question. Since employee wellness programs are executed at the agency level, it's ultimately up to each federal agency to measure the success of their program. However, we do provide recommendations for evaluating the success of wellness programs, such as monitoring key performance indicators, which can assist agencies in objectively gauging the effectiveness of these programs. So if there is, for example, an agency who maybe a few months down the road is struggling to kind of you know, get the word out or encourage employees to take advantage, and maybe they're missing some of those key performance indicators, what is the role of OPM to kind of step in or help that agency? And how, what does that relationship really look like? So OPM's work-life team is always open to providing guidance. Um, if agencies reach out and email us at worklife at OPM, our team is always willing to consult and, you know, speak with agencies about problems that they may be having. But that's something that we'll address as those issues arise, if they arise. The president's management agenda did mention um, a bit about 
the importance of mental health and employee wellness. Is that something that, you know, this work kind of ties back to the PMA or is there some sort of relationship between the two here? Absolutely. The new employee wellness guidance directly relates to PMA Goal 2.3, which notes that agencies will promote awareness of employee well-being and support initiatives that extend beyond the workplace. We provide recommendations for agency leaders on how to overcome major barriers to employee wellness program usage, such as structural or attitudinal barriers to aid agencies in facilitating increased awareness and utilization of wellness resources. And I know that we we may have touched on this a little bit already, but what is the end goal of this new federal employee wellness uh, guidance and the, the kind of updated program? What are you hoping agencies and employees get out of it at the end of the day? Our end goal is to see the integration of a holistic approach to employee well-being, which emphasizes the importance of an employee's physical, mental, and emotional health, and to influence a culture across agencies which remains adaptive and responsive to the needs of the federal workforce. Can you offer anything on a personal note of, you know, why this work is important to you and what you're kind of getting out of the, the process of redesigning or, you know, getting to be very hands-on in, in the new guidance here? Since my um, master's degree was in IO psychology with a concentration in diversity and social change, I'm really, you know, pleased to be able to work on a team that, you know, created this employee wellness guidance and have the opportunity to kind of, you know, reflect on some best practices of wellness and an include some of those DEIA initiatives to ensure that there are supports for all employees. Anything else that you wanted to add or anything you feel that you missed in telling me? I think the final takeaway would just be that we encourage our agency leaders to promote these resources on a proactive rather than a reactive basis so that employees can maintain their mental health on a consistent basis. Jorday Taswell, personnel research psychologist at OPM, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the push is on to improve pay for the nation's federal firefighters. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A bill with bipartisan backing would give substantial raises to federal firefighters. Their union says they make close to minimum wage for this dangerous work and that they haven't had a raise in a generation. Here with more on the Federal Firefighter Pay Equity Act, the Government Affairs Representative of the International Association of Firefighters, Greg Russell. Mr. Russell, good to have you with us. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me in. And tell us the situation for the federal firefighting force. I guess two of the departments each have firefighters, about 5,000 in one and about 12,000, I think, in the other. What is their pay situation now? Well, so let's define who the firefighters are. There are approximately 9,500 federal firefighters that answer 911 calls on federal installations all across the United States. They're located in 46 states, and they are an all-hazards firefighting force. So they respond to fire emergencies, vehicle accidents, hazardous material spill, and emergency medical service calls. Their situation with their pay is this. They earn approximately two-thirds of the hourly rate paid to a general schedule government employee. Their average hourly rate across the United States is $16.26 an hour. In Hawaii, where you have an incredibly high cost of living, the average hourly rate is $14.55. Compare that to Mississippi, generally a smaller economy, if you will. In Mississippi, it's $15.85 an hour is the average hourly rate for these firefighters. So we need to address their hourly pay, which will help with recruitment and retention. We're currently seeing between 15 and 20% vacancies across the federal government. And again, this is just structural firefighters. This does not include the wildland. Our firefighters here do not 
primarily respond to wildland fires. That's a complete separate federal occupation. At that pay level, then, how does that compare to, say, if you're in Honolulu or if you're in a city, that municipal fire department levels of pay? The pay is approximately a third to half of the neighboring municipality. And oftentimes, our firefighters, federal firefighters, are responding hand-in-hand with the municipality. You know, in our D.C. metro area where I'm located, we have the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, the National Institutes of Health, and the Department of Navy, all located within Montgomery County, Maryland. As part of a mutual aid agreement, those agencies respond to fires and incidents in Montgomery County. So they're standing side by side with Montgomery County firefighters saving the lives and property of the Maryland citizen. This is not just uh, in Maryland. This happens all over. In Fed Fire San Diego, they respond to incidents with the municipalities there. We have to do this firefighting evolution by joining our forces together. There is no way that one entity alone can handle all their emergencies. We have this integrated mutual aid system, which takes our firefighters from the federal facility out into the municipal sector, and then also brings the municipal sector into the Fed sector. Tell us more about the Federal Firefighter Pay Equity Act. What would that specifically do, and does it go far enough in your view? The Federal Firefighter Pay Equity Act is an incremental step at moving the ball forward. So that bill would level the playing field for the hourly wage when you compare grades. A firefighter is typically a GS-5 to a GS-7. Again, they're making two-thirds of what the typical GS-5, GS-7 makes, so they will see their pay elevated to the same hourly rate. Another flaw, if you will, in the current benefit scheme is federal firefighters do not receive full compensation or full consideration for their high three when their retirement benefits are calculated. We intend to increase their high three figure to the amount they earn for their regularly reoccurring 72-hour work week. A federal firefighter typically works 3,744 hours a year. However, not the total of that 3,744 hours counts towards their retirement. Each pay period, they're reduced approximately 19 hours when it comes to the retirement calculation. Well, over 26 pay periods, 19 hours adds up to a substantial amount, which lowers their high three calculation about five to $7,000, depending on their grade. We're speaking with Greg Russell. He's government affairs representative of the International Association of Firefighters. And just give us a sense of how they live when they're on duty, because uh, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, and there are volunteers and there are full-time, you know, sworn firefighters, and they have nice firehouses. And you know, it's almost like you see on these TV shows. And when the fire comes, they're ready. But meanwhile, life is not bad in the firehouse. What is it like for the feds? So the federal fire sector is very much similar to the municipal sector. One thing that I will share that is different than what you see on TV is most of the federal facilities are well dated. For example, we still have a fire station fully occupied and in service 24 hours a day here in the District of Columbia that was built in the 1800s. That building is at the Washington Navy Yard. There are other departments out there that I am aware of that are living in cramped quarters because the buildings are so old that they haven't kept up with the modern apparatus. You know, imagine the size of a vehicle, a fire engine from the 1950s, and compare that to a fire engine you see today, the current fire engine's probably two feet wider and six to eight feet longer and maybe a foot or two taller. 
that takes up valuable real estate, if you will, and what sacrifices is the living quarters. Federal firefighters do not enjoy single occupant bunk rooms. Most of them have three, four, even 10, 12 firefighters sleeping in a single room, and that is if they can sleep and they are working 24 hours a day, so they have kitchen facilities and the kitchens are often dated, very small cramped. Many fire stations do not have training facilities like you find in modern fire stations. So as far as fire station facilities go, across the board, they could use modernization. We're talking about all agencies. So the largest employer of federal firefighters is the Department of Defense, followed by Veterans Affairs. But again, you have federal firefighters at Commerce, at Health and Human Services, at Interior, at Energy, Department of Homeland Security with Coast Guard facilities. So they're across the board when it comes to agencies. But DOD is by far the largest employer, and they're the ones suffering the highest attrition at this time. You know, we have the Norfolk Navy base, the largest naval mm -hmm. base in the free world, currently has between 50 and 60 vacant firefighter positions. Folks do not want to go to work for the Navy who are paying wages substantially below the municipal counterparts. And our federal firefighters, again, like I said, work a 72-hour work week as opposed to a typical municipal employee who works between 52 and 56 hours each week. So we work more hours for less money in the federal sector. And that's a third part of our bill. The third part of our bill would direct the Office of Personnel Management to determine the maximum number of hours a federal firefighter can be regularly scheduled, provided that maximum is no more than 60 hours. So the Office of Personnel Management could determine that 56, which is comparable to municipal firefighters, is appropriate and set it at that. But at no case would it be more than 60 hours. Right, so two and a half days. And we should point out that 3,744 hours a year at $16 an hour, say, that only comes out to just below $60,000. So it's not like they're getting giant pay here for these long hours. That's correct. How do these firefighters pay compare to the federal wildfire firefighters who are having a temporary pay boost through the so, one of the bills, and that's about to expire at the end of the fiscal year? Correct. These firefighters did not receive that approximately $20,000 a year pay boost. These firefighters still are making just above minimum wage in many states. In comparison, their gross salaries are about the same when you consider all the overtime that goes into wildland firefighting. Sure. And getting back to this bill, does it have a Senate and a House counterpart? And what do you think the prospects are right now, given Congress? So it is a bipartisan bill in the House, and we are in discussion with folks on the Senate side. At present, I am optimistic that we can gain some traction. Today, from what I understand, the House will take up the National Defense Authorization Act, and that will include pay boost for our low-ranking military people. Well, when you consider that these federal firefighters are sworn to protect those military people, they deserve a wage that is comparable, if not more, for somebody that risks their life day in and day out than a typical uh, military member on the home front. Uh, when they're in a combat zone, they certainly deserve every penny they earn, but many military occupations in the homeland are not in a risky position, whereas firefighting, regardless of state, municipal, or federal, is a group one carcinogen as determined by the International Agency for Research on Cancer. That means just by being a firefighter, you have the likelihood of contracting cancer on par with somebody that has unprotected exposure to nuclear energy. 
All right. Well, let's hope that bill has a good chance. Sounds like they deserve that pay raise, that's for sure. Greg Russell is government affairs representative of the International Association of Firefighters. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, when contractor claims against the government don't involve money. But first, these USDA employees modernized an old program so poor Americans could eat better. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, is among the oldest enduring federal programs. Now the Agriculture Department has found a way to help recipients eat well, even if they live in what's known as a food desert. No access to supermarkets or high-quality food. For their work in bringing SNAP to online food buying, my next guests are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Lisa Gifaldi is Senior Technical Advisor to the SNAP program. Ms. Gifaldi, good to have you on. Thank you. Great to be here. And Shelley Pierce is Director of the SNAP Policy and Innovation Division. Ms. Pierce, good to have you with us. Yes, thank you for having us. All right. First of all, a little bit of background here. SNAP program, traditionally, people would go to a food retailer and exchange the benefits on that little card for properly vetted and the correct things they can buy under the SNAP program. How extensive are food deserts in the country as you define them? Shelley? Sure. I don't know that there's a whole lot of hard data on that. I think that it varies a lot based on individual people's circumstances. What we might not inherently think of as a food desert could very much be so for someone who lacks transportation or who perhaps works during the time when the stores around them do happen to be open. It varies, I think, with this population based on what folks would normally think of as a typical food desert. Sure. And so let's get right to it. To enable SNAP to get to online buying of food, and there's no shortage of places there, and pretty much everybody has that access through a phone. Uh, Lisa, tell us what some of the technologies and technical approaches were required to even see if this was feasible. Retailers needed to have a website, an e-commerce platform, as well as we needed to find a company that was able to provide a pin pad solution. Since at brick and mortar stores, SNAP recipients have to input a four digit pin in order to make a purchase. So we had to find a company to help us create and develop that and to integrate it into a retailer's website, as well as the state agencies We needed their support in order to update their EBT systems in order to accept those transactions as well. Yeah, and anyone who's ever programmed anything knows that that is not a trivial lift to get that PIN system and so forth end-to-end there. Was there any resistance from state programs that might have realized that the purchases with their dollars, state dollars, would not necessarily go to in-state merchants anymore? Shelley? We actually have long had in the law that governs SNAP a requirement for SNAP benefits to be able to be used across state lines. So that's something that they're well used to. But I will say that early on, prior to the pandemic, there were several states that were maybe not as comfortable with the use of benefits online. And certainly nobody wants to be the guinea pig or first out of the gate. They kind of wanted to step back and you know let the others go first and see how it goes. And what demand signals did you get from recipients and people using the SNAP program or from anybody else that this might be a good alternative? Because it seems really obvious in retrospect, but yet nobody thought of it till now. At the beginning, I think that recipients were unsure. Obviously, you know, we were just getting into, in general, in the commercial world, you know, having e-commerce. So now to get groceries... You know, that was something relatively new. And then the pandemic hit, and that's when it spread like wildfire, and everyone wanted to have that ability to shop online. Right. Literally, the whole nation wanted to shop online at that point. Yes. And so what did it take? I mean, did you hire a contractor to do this? What were some of the steps? Give us just a brief story of how you got four-digit PIN capability into the cards, into the retailers online, because dealing with some of those companies is like dealing with the planet Mars. It's very hard to find out who do you even call to ask about this capability. 
looking into the technology aspect of it is something that had been going on for several years. We certainly did most of the coordination on this by and large was handled by our team at FNS. So it was a very big task. And especially before the pandemic, we did run into several fits and starts with this because as you said, you know, you're working with many, many stakeholders, many large companies that have shifting and different priorities. Some of the partners we were working with had their companies sold or merged as we were working through. And then what had been a priority maybe wasn't somebody else's. So there was a lot of a lot of handholding and a lot of convincing and, you know, pulling some people along. We're speaking with Shelley Pierce. She's director of the Policy and Innovation Division of the Agriculture Department's SNAP program. And Lisa Gifaldi, a senior technical advisor there. So who were the first guinea pigs that said, okay, we'll put a four-digit pin on our site, et cetera? You know, just to provide some background, in 2017, we published a request for volunteers, and that was directed towards retailers. So a bunch of retailers provided proposals, and we selected Amazon, Walmart, ShopRite, Wakefern, and Wright's Supermarket located in Alabama. So obviously you have the bigger companies, Amazon, Walmart, and then you have some medium-sized supermarkets, which is Wakefern, and then you have a small retailer, which is Wright's located in Alabama. So that was going through. And then at the same time, we had to sort of beg states to volunteer themselves. So New York was the first state to raise their hand and support this initiative. At that point, we worked with their EBT host processor as well as a company who provided the pin pad. And it was probably a two-year process to get this up and running. And in April of 2019, we processed the first transactions with Amazon, Walmart, and ShopRite. And rights came on a few months later. And how is it working? What's the take-up? Give us a sense of the metrics here to know that this is a program that's being accepted. Shelley? So after the first five or so initial states went online, they stood up around early April was the last one of 2020. So then, of course, you know, COVID hit and we expanded to an additional 40 plus states by that fall, as well as adding many additional retailers. Right now, we have about 4 million households that shop online nationwide each month. You know, and those households may make multiple purchases. We have a little over 200 retailer banners, as we call them. I mean, for context, Walmart would be one of those. And we have about uh, 9% of the overall SNAP benefits that are redeemed each month are redeemed online. So that makes them our third highest redeeming type of store behind supermarkets and superstores. Interesting. So it really wasn't necessarily a great loss for the local mom and pop type of store, the highs or the, you know, these kinds of, some of them are still independently owned. It sounds like most of the business anyway was to the larger end of the retail chain. They typically did redeem more in benefits, but I will say a lot of the retailers that we've brought on, especially over the last year or so, are what you would consider as smaller retailers, like many single-owned operations, um, one or two stores and things like that. And just a technical question, Lisa, besides the PIN, which was a technical capability, it's like establishing the 988 number nationwide. Easy to say, it takes years of work to do. Of course, the rules that go with the redeeming of SNAP benefits, you can't buy beer and cigarettes, et cetera, et cetera. How does that get programmed in? That must have been quite a challenge to make sure that only the proper items could get through the system that way. Yeah, there are some rules that are requirements that the retailers had to implement on their websites. And it was a little bit difficult at first because we were working with the really techie people who didn't understand the requirements behind SNAP because they didn't work in that area in the brick and mortar world. They were just setting up a website. So, you know, one of the rules obviously is that SNAP recipients can only purchase SNAP eligible foods. And what we had to do is do a lot of testing. You know, the retailers had to provide us with business requirement documents that laid out how they were going to implement all of those requirements that we established in the request for volunteers. 
and then they did their their website build and then when they were ready to have us look at it we did intensive testing and then they were able to go live at that point and does a snap card by the way work like a debit card once it's empty it's empty and then the number will show this banking system that it's out of money Correct. And so that was the other thing, too. We had to ensure that the transaction response codes made sense to the recipients because in the credit and debit world, if your card doesn't work, you know, usually the response is go talk to your bank. (laughs) Uh, We don't have a bank here. Uh, So we had to ensure that those responses made sense if they had insufficient funds, if they had a bad pin and things like that. And so where do we go from here now that you've got this really good base of operation, millions of people using it, billions of dollars, I guess even 9% of SNAP is a lot of money. What's next for the program? Well, in terms of online, you know, we continue to look for ways to help some of the smaller retailers in more rural areas move towards being able to update their websites, you know, if they're able to support whether it's delivery or pickup. We're also kind of looking to the what's next of the program. So we just started the early stages of implementing pilots for mobile payments. So where you could add your SNAP card to your mobile wallet and use it in store that way. Well, it sounds really cool. Shelly Pierce is director of the Policy and Innovation Division of the Agriculture Department's SNAP program. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having us. Lisa Gifaldi is senior technical advisor. Thank you so much. Thank you. And along with Andrea Gold O'Connor, they are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, when contractor claims against the government don't involve money. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Usually, contractors protest to the government over matters related to money. But there's also a long history of non-monetary damage, usually related to interpretations of contracts. A recent case has affirmed this line of claim, as we hear from Haynes Boone procurement attorney Dan Ramish. And Dan, tell us about this case. Who protested and what did they protest over and what happened? So, Tom, this case was a Contract Disputes Act non-monetary claim by a company called J&J Maintenance. And J&J Maintenance brought a non-monetary claim relating to how costs were reimbursed under its contract. It had a time and materials contract, and under a time and materials contract, the materials part is reimbursed at cost. And the government and the contractor disagreed over how to calculate cost. J&J said its cost was its subcontractor's price plus markup. And the government took the position that only the cost to the subcontractor was reimbursable under the contract. And so there was effectively a contract interpretation dispute. But as part of this dispute, the government took the position that this was not a valid non-monetary claim, that you could put a number on this. And that question was posed by a Federal Circuit decision in 2018. You mentioned in our intro here that non-monetary claims have a long history at both the Boards of Contract Appeals and at the Court of Federal Claims. And that's true. Actually, the Boards of Contract Appeals heard non-monetary claims before the Contract Disputes Act was even enacted in 1978. The Court of Federal Claims gained non-monetary claim jurisdiction in the 90s with amendments to the Tucker Act. So there was a long history at both tribunals of hearing claims that did not involve requests from the government for money. But Uh, it sounds like this did involve a request for money because it was the basis for cost reimbursement. Well, so there's a fine point here, and this was the government's argument and was also the argument in the 2018 Federal Circuit decision that changed this area of the law. So the issue in Secura Force was a convenience termination. The contractor brought a non-monetary claim saying that this convenience termination was a breach of contract. And the Federal Circuit said, you're styling your claim as a non-monetary claim, but in fact, ultimately, the only significant consequence of your claim will be getting money from the government. And the Federal Circuit said, well, yes, this will be a second proceeding. After we determine whether there's a breach or not, you would only get money damages by bringing a second claim. Still, at the end of the day, this is reducible to money and there are no non-monetary stakes here. 
Right, because and every contract has consideration, which is money. Otherwise, it's not a contract. This is part of what's complicated here, Tom. That I mean, that's know, what Plato course, told me. <laughs> of course, at the end of the day, claims involve money. The Federal Circuit, though, in Securiforce, raised the question of whether there were any claims still that did not just involve money, but involved other significant consequences to contractors. And J&J addressed this question squarely. Uh, J&J said, hey, yes, there are costs involved here, but we'll avoid incurring additional costs depending on the outcome of the case and we'll change our performance. So one of its grounds for non-monetary claim was submission of supply house invoices or or special invoices that showed the subcontractor's costs. And J&J said, well, if you decide in our favor, we've been providing these invoices under protest, we'll stop performing that task. And not performing a task is a significant consequence independent of money damages from the government. And similarly, avoiding incurring costs, they said, well, if we can't recover markup on subcontractors, maybe we'll self-perform, maybe we'll directly purchase the materials instead of having the subs purchase them so that we can get markup on it. All right. What was the decision in this case? So the board agreed with the contractor that the ability to avoid incurring costs and to avoid performing a contractual task were under the SecureForce decision and the test in SecureForce significant consequences that supported a non-monetary claim. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. And tell us exactly why this is such an important case. The reason this is important, the distinction between a monetary and non-monetary claim, is that there are jurisdictional requirements for a monetary claim. So uh, if you're stating a monetary claim, it has to be stated in a some certain. It has to have a specific amount that you're demanding. And it also requires for claims over $100,000 that the contractor certify the claim. And so in this case, J&J had not stated a some certain in its claim, and it also had not certified. I think it actually wasn't required to certify. It was below the threshold. But in any event, the decision on non-monetary claims affects the jurisdictional requirements. And the board said here, if you don't have to perform a task or if you can avoid incurring costs, then you have a valid non-monetary claim that doesn't need to meet the monetary claim requirements. Okay. So all of this detail means what then? What's the significance of this case that non-monetary is a real thing that can be sued in these different protest venues and that contractors should be able to do that, right? The reason that non-monetary claims jurisdiction is important is that when you have a valid non-monetary claim, it doesn't need to meet the jurisdictional requirements for monetary claims. So monetary claims need to be stated in a sum certain. And if the claim amount is over $100,000, the contractor is required to certify the claim. So here, if the board said, if the contractor can avoid performance of a contractual task or can avoid incurring costs, then those are significant consequences that are not monetary, that support a non-monetary claim, and therefore you don't have to state a sum certain. And if it's over $100,000, you don't have to certify. But jurisdiction, isn't that where you take the claim to whether it's federal district court or to the boards of contract appeals? Yes. So the argument over non-monetary versus monetary claims is whether the boards and the Court of Federal Claims have jurisdiction to decide non-monetary claims at all or appeals of non-monetary claims. And the J&J maintenance decision demonstrates that it's still possible for contractors to bring non-monetary claims at the boards and at the Court of Federal Claims, even under the demanding secure force test. And that's good news for both contractors and the government alike, because where non-monetary claims are asserted in appropriate circumstances, they have the potential to resolve disputes early on between the contractor and the government before there's major disruption or expense and that can prevent the dispute from becoming a larger problem. Right. It seems like you should look at all of those clauses that might potentially cause money issues way to the left of finding out somewhere during the performance of the contract is, wait a minute, we don't agree on what I'm submitting to you. It seems like this should be established at the time of the award or even at the time of negotiations before the award so that you don't have these non-monetary claims even come up in the first place. Yes, it is preferable, certainly for contractors who have to continue performing during the pendency of a dispute to get some kind of resolution, sometimes in the form of a non-monetary claim, so that they can alter their performance accordingly based on the judgment. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. As always, thanks so much. 
Thanks, Tom. Some good lessons there. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A former Postal Service mail carrier claiming religious discrimination against the Postal Service. He's going to get a day in court and not his first. The former employee claimed USPS violated his rights when it disciplined him for not working on Sundays. The Supreme Court heard the case, but sent it back to a federal appeals court for that final ruling. Now, that ruling could have a major impact on the USPS package business and therefore its long-term financial health. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins us with the latest. And before we get into the specific ruling, just if you would, Jory, review what's going on in this case. Sure. So this case centers around Gerald Groff, an evangelical Christian and a former carrier in Lancaster Pennsylvania. He observes Sundays as a day of rest. And for the longest while, this was not a problem working for the Postal Service. They, for a while, were not working on Sundays. That all changed in 2013 when they struck a deal with Amazon to deliver packages on Sundays. And that is a huge line of business for the Postal Service. This was a point of contention for Groff. He said he was not going to work Sundays. The Postal Service the post office that he worked at, they really went out of their way to find accommodations for him. From their point of view, they tried to get other carriers to carry out those Sunday shifts. Things eventually didn't work out. Groff quit the Postal Service in 2019, but he had claimed that his rights were violated, and in this case now appears before the Supreme Court. All right. And the central question the Supreme Court was actually weighing in on, what is that question? So it's a very narrow question here. It goes back to precedent that the Supreme Court settled 50 years ago in another case, Transworld Airlines versus Hardison. It set this standard for religious accommodation, the bar that employers have to meet to say that uh, an accommodation is unreasonable for them to meet. It's a de minimis standard, which in Latin is minor or kind of trivial. And so anything above that standard is is something that an employer shouldn't be obligated to meet under the law. And so this is something that the Supreme Court was wrestling with. We heard Justice Samuel Alito say, well, in terms of those costs that the employer has to show, it's really just a question of dollars and cents. The overtime an employer has to, you know, occur, incur for, you know, dealing with an employee in a situation Justice Sonia Sotomayor said, well, it's really not just the cost. It's about how many employees are available. The Postal Service is a big employer, but when you look at the individual post office, in this case, it was a very small one. And so you're putting a real burden on the other employees. Right. I suppose in a place like New York City or Los Angeles, you probably have enough staff to juggle around so that if someone really can't or won't work on a Sunday or a Saturday, then you can accommodate them. But Lancaster, Pennsylvania is a small metropolitan area. It is. is, And that really came down to uh, what the Supreme Court ruled in this case. All right. So then this is going to be for this lower court to decide. And how had the lower courts ruled in the first place? Because there was a decision there that made it go to the Supreme Court. It did. In that earlier case, the Third Circuit for the U.S. Court of Appeals, they ruled in favor of the Postal Service. They found that while this may not be a significant cost for the Postal Service as a business to take on, it really did have to deal with those costs in terms of that local point of view, in terms of the costs imposed on other carriers at that post office, and something that the Solicitor General, arguing on behalf of the Postal Service, said that with Groff's accommodations, one carrier quit, another transferred to a new post office, and a third filed a union grievance. So yes, there was definitely a feeling amongst the workforce that this was a really heavy cost and a burden for them to deal with. Right. So it it was above that de minimis standard, and therefore the Postal Service would not have to comply with this. And the Supreme Court said, decide again, sending it down to that appeals court. All right. And was this unanimous on the Supreme Court's part? It was unanimous, and that's quite rare these days for the Supreme Court to uh, hand down that kind of ruling. They did clarify things, the de minimis standard. They are now rephrasing that as being a substantial increased cost for employers to bear. They are not throwing out any of that 50 years of precedent here. They still say that that holds and EEOC guidance around religious accommodations, that largely is going to stay intact here. Despite that unanimous ruling, we did hear from both sides of the court in two concurring opinions here. We heard from Justice Alito saying that 
this EEOC guidance is going to stay in place. Not a huge amount has changed, but they are really narrowly redefining what that bar is for employers. And then we heard from Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson in their separate opinion. They said that USPS in this case can say that a cost is being put on the workforce, and that's something that they can claim here in this particular case. Interesting. Alito and Sotomayor and Brown-Jackson have concurring opinions, but probably by different avenues. One is the effect on the workforce, which would be something you would think would be higher in the mind, perhaps, of Sotomayor and Jackson. And the burden on business financially might be higher in Alito's look at this. But they came to the same conclusion. Interesting. All right. So now, with respect to the Postal Service's bottom line, if it is ruled at some point that they have to accommodate in this manner, how would that affect the Postal Service writ large, do you think? Well, it's really hard to overestimate how big a deal this Amazon contract is for the Postal Service. We as the public don't have specifics in terms of the dollar value of that, but this is a really substantial line of business for them. When the Postal Service inked this deal in 2013, they said that they were really going through some of the worst of their financial issues. They finished 2012 with a $16 billion net loss. That's pretty bad for them. And what we heard more recently from Postmaster General Louis DeJoy as part of his 10-year reform plan, he says that a core of that business, uh, he says a core of that plan is to increase the package business. And that's going to be tough if they're going to have to pay more in overtime or if they lose this appeals case, uh, have to really rethink how they're going to carry out the terms of this contract. I am confident that the men and women of the United States Postal Service will raise their game to overcome the obstacles and thinking of the past to continue to improve our operational performance and capture our fair share of the competitive but growing package delivery business. People want it tomorrow if you order today or even maybe this afternoon on a Sunday. What is the official word from the Postal Service about the Supreme Court remanding here? What they have told us is that they are pretty confident that they will once again uh, win the case in terms of what the Third uh, Circuit Court of Appeals has to say about this case. They won the last time it appeared before that court. And what the court ruled in that moment was that, yes, again, the uh, burden was on the rest of the workforce. It really reduced morale, uh, making this accommodation was pretty substantial for the Postal Service. And so they ruled in favor of them. So they say that once again, things are probably going to, even with this new bar that they have to meet, demonstrate this is again the case, that this was a high bar for them. This was a uh, tough thing for them to accommodate. And have we heard from Gerald Groff? What does he say about the ruling? You know, he's also claiming victory in this case. He and his uh, lawyer representing him during oral arguments, they both said that this is a victory for religious liberty and that this is a win for uh, folks like him in terms of workplace rights and having that flexibility to observe a Sabbath. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen. 